chapter 5 as we continue this exposition. I do hope that you have your Bible in front of you. It is a blessing to see people with their own Bible open in front of them, following through the lines that you might be able to uh, uh, go back and, and read and go over what has been preached. <coughs> will be very familiar to you. James 5 uh, starts, this, uh, uh, starts with uh, six verses towards actually not the people receiving the letter. This portion of the, the letter is, is not to the Christian Jews. As we've said, that, that uh, James was a pastor in Jerusalem in the early years of the Christian church. But as the persecution rose up uh, over the years after the gospel started going forth, the, the Jews were, were pressing down onto the Christians and many of them had to flee the city, flee the nation, go to the countryside, sometimes just up north towards Galilee, often over, uh, uh, overflowing into places like Syria, Asia Minor, and finding their, their, their safety there, where the Jews were not going to chase them, hunt them down, and make their life altogether terrible. And to that scattered Jewish Christian cohort, James has written this letter addressing all sorts of pastoral concerns, not theological concerns. It's not a heavy, theologically rich discourse of a letter. It is primarily a letter addressing ethics, morality, Christian behavior in a fallen world. That is what we've been seeing. We've, we've seen him address things such as how we speak with our tongue, how we suffer through, uh, through persecutions, how we show partiality to the poorer and less influential around us, how we, how we uh, 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 must prove our justifying faith with works that show that we really are saved. A unworking faith, a, a, a lazy faith that does not pursue righteousness is a dead faith. Furthermore, he's, he's uh, repeated onto us about the importance of the tongue, of the importance of wisdom from above, a warning against worldliness, a warning against boasting about tomorrow as if we were the sovereign and God was dependent on us. And now we get to a portion, these first six verses of chapter 5, that is not actually primarily addressed to the audience, the, the Christian Jews. Rather, what James is doing is he's writing, and this will be evident in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he's writing about an evil group of people outside of the church. He's writing to the church, sort of through the church, that they might read it and pass on that letter to the other people. We might, we might be a bit confused by that. It has, how, adds to how a, a Christian pastor can speak to non-Christian groups of society. But in fact, this is very much fitting that, that those who have the Word of God, as we see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, those who have the Word of God speak not just to the people of God, but to everybody. Because everybody is within the reach of the authority of God. Everybody owes God obedience. And in fact, this has been historically one of the jobs of the church is to give that prophetic witness uh, to the church, but really through the church to the society. It's not at all uh, wrong or out of place for the church to address the cultural sins, address the societal sins that are going on in the day. If you know me, you know I actually take a bit of fun to do that. Social media makes it, of course, all the more easy, a little bit cheap, and, and often uh, uh, breeding contempt and immaturity, and yet it, it's what the church ought to do. Allow yourself the freedom to speak to the world on the authority of the Bible. I'm big on emphasizing that. Anyway, so here we're going to see in verse 1 through 6, I'll, I'll read it once through, and then we're going to return to, chapter, to verse 1 to really give ourselves a bit of context for what James is saying. He says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches you have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corrupted and their corrosion will be evidence against you 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. May God bless to us the reading and understanding of his own precious word in our midst this evening. If you knew that that's what we do, you give a big hearty amen at the end of the Bible reading. The verse one sets us up for the context of tonight's passage. <clears throat> He's speaking through his congregation, through the scattered Christians, to the rich. That's what he says in verse one. Come now, you rich. This is a denunciation of an unsaved group of people that are extremely wealthy and very much a, a oligarchs or aristocrats in the society at the time. There is, there is absolutely no hint of even a call to repentance here. Not only does he not remind them of the gospel and not remind them of Jesus and not remind them to repent and, and walk in the way, he doesn't even call them to salvation. He just gives blatant judgment and woes to them. There, there is nothing in here that says repent and God will forgive. This is, this is just blatant judgment. He's speaking to an unsaved, wealthy group of people who are not Christians. Like maybe some of them claimed to be Christians, but James doesn't address them as Christians. He doesn't do as he has done previously when he says, brothers and sisters who are doing these things, change your ways and return to the Lord. He doesn't say that. He just says, you rich, weep and wail, howl and be miserable because you are under judgment. That's what verse 1 says. Because of the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, Calvin says at this point, he says, this section of scripture is a simple, clear denunciation of God's judgment by which he meant to terrify them without giving them any hope of pardon. For all that he says here tends only to despair. Calvin goes on to say that the reason this is written to the church and not simply as a, as a separate letter or, or as a separate address. Now, we, we know providentially in history, God did it that way so that it would be preserved in Scripture. But even more so of the day, Calvin says that in James' motivation, he's writing to the Christians with this, so that they would be kept from envy of the rich. So that they would see right before them, in the letter, the abusive rich people that are, that are assaulting the Christians and, and doing so by fraudulent, thieving, murderous behavior. They are being reminded, do not envy those people. They are under judgment. And he does it, of course, that the church might give witness to those people. <laughs> he is consoling them while judging the outside Christians. So, so think of it this way. They, they would have been mostly large, wealthy businessmen. They would have been landowners. And basically back in those days, especially agricultural uh, economies, if you own the land, you own the economy. Everyone needs the farming, everyone needs the agriculture, everyone needs the wheat and the barley and the crops. Without it, the economy grinds to a halt. And so if you are the landowner, you, you, you have a, a large hand over the economy of the day. In fact, it's very easy to get very rich. And what it seems that has happened is many people had accumulated many fields so, so that all of the wealth was owned and being controlled by a few at the top. A few particularly rich and wealthy controlling people at the top with all of the power. Not necessarily in itself a bad thing. 
It's not as if they are sinful because they own more than other people. And we're going to see this. It is not riches itself, which is the sin. It is not wealth that is the sin. It is not having a huge portfolio or an enormous wealth and income that is the sin. But those are things that tend so closely and that almost seem to unavoidably lead people into the sin of greed, indulgence, and unrighteousness. So look what he says in verse 1. He says, weep and howl. These, these words are only ever used in the Old Testament in the prophets. And when they're used, they're always about judgment that is coming for destruction. They probably think, they probably think, these rich people, that things may be bad now, and maybe they were. Maybe things were not ideal, but they would have thought things are going to get better. I'm rich. But God is saying through James, the worst is yet to come because God has opposed you. You have assaulted, you have abused the wrong people for too long, and now God's judgment is against them. God's judgment would be so severe that they will be reduced to screeching and screaming. Now, we can start asking what this judgment would have looked like, and, and maybe some of you will put yourselves into the historical uh, thinking box and go, well, maybe this was the wars that was literally about to come upon the Jews under the hands of the Romans. Literally, in, in the whole of Israel, there were going to be landowners. No Jew was going to keep their lands. As the Romans came after the, the Jews started the warfare in the year 67 through 70 AD, the Jews were going to lose all of their lands. If your wealth is hold, is hold up and, and, and invested entirely in agriculture and lands and, and, uh, and things like that, the Romans coming through and destroying the entire nation was going to render you completely impoverished. You're going to starve, you're going to die, and guess what? All those people who you abused for so long, they're going to come and get you. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's part of what James is saying, or maybe that's at least a physical way that we can see it unfold, but primarily what James is offering them, what James is threatening them with, rather, is the threat of eternal damnation because of how they have handled their wealth. He's saying that miseries have come upon them. He's saying that they are going to be consumed by fire and that they will be judged under God's wrath. Let's start looking at what their, what their uh, sins actually, actually looked like. Number one, we're going to see that they were hoarding wealth while other people suffered. We're going to see that they were thieving and fraudulating their funds and, and by that, murdering people. And then thirdly, we're going to see that they were living in self-indulgent luxury. This is, this is verse 2 through verse 5. First of all, the sin of hoarding. As we've said, wealth is in itself not so much the sin. It, it really is a blessing. If you're rich, if you have a large income, if your fathers have left you something, if your families have left you something, if your mother had a great job and here you are sitting in the 21st century and you have much to be thankful for, then praise God, thank him for it. You don't need to feel guilty. We're not Marxists. We're not going to be saying that, that the rich are the powerful and therefore evil and those who are oppressed are, are, the, are the righteous people that need to redistribute and equalize wealth across the society. Not only is it impossible, that's extremely unrighteous and unbiblical. It's theft. But nonetheless, the people who are rich are the far greater temptation to commit the sins that we see today. The great sin that he starts off with in verse 2 through 3 is the sin of hoarding. Look what he says. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corrupted and corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last day. 
So you haven't, uh, uh, he's saying to these people that they have so much. Their, their wealth has, has become so extreme that they have so much. Their, their activity now, and we see Jesus use a parable with exactly this dynamic. You just have so much, so rich, so wealthy. What do they do with it? They just start buying extra storehouses to put their gold in. They just start buying and building extra whore, uh, whorehouse, storehouses. We'll edit that one out. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> They bought all sorts of things. I'm not going to say that wouldn't have happened, but that was an accident. Storehouses for their grain, okay, where they would put everything in. Their goal was to, to simply store up and hoard everything that they had. This is why, this is why uh, James is saying that everything you have, rather than going to use, is literally wasting where it is saved. We know that in, the, in that day, of course, they didn't so much have banks and they, it was impossible to sort of digitize their money. If you had gold, you had to put it somewhere. So very common was the practice of finding a field, burying it, putting treasure in it, that Jesus, again, used that, used that imagery in a parable. It was not uncommon for people digging to, to, build a, to put a plant in and find hoarded gold. Well, this is what uh, the, James is showing the picture. He's saying that, that you have so much, you're storing it, storing it so plentifully that by the time you go to touch it, by the time you go and see it again, by the time you even come back to your wealth, it's already corroded and rusted and all of your clothes are devoured by moths. Now you can imagine being in that sort of situation. If you find all of your money, all of your gold, all of your precious things, all of your clothes, your fine linen imported from all over the world, and you find them so destroyed, the first emotion, of course, is, is, is anger and, and, and annoyance that this has happened, maybe frustration towards God. But the righteous and proper response should be, I am such a fool. I was so obviously not needing them because I have not used them so that all that they were good for is rotting and corroding. And this comes to a, to a people like, like us in the 21st century, people who have cupboards full of toys and clothes and, and, and shoes and, and things that we don't use, and then a garage full of boxes of things that we don't use but would never throw out, would not think to give away. Maybe we'd sell it for some extra cash. And then, of course, for the extra things that we have, which our enormous houses do not fit, we will go and rent out storage complexes. Storage units, uh, units so that we can put even more stuff into those. And then, of course, there's the hats that we keep locked away in the holiday home that we have filled with all of our good possessions. This is the kind of, this is the kind of insult, uh, the, the kind of assault on hoarding that we need to take seriously for ourselves. When good men of the past and when godly generations of the past have been used by God to give blessings to a nation like running water, the internet, medical advances, good cars, a balanced economy, freedom from dictators, all of those things. And tomorrow we'll remember the fact that all these things have been kept, uh, uh, aimed, uh, attained for us and, pro and pr protected for us by good men of the past who fought and built and died for this great nation, right? So, so, so we get in that mindset and then we think that what we ought to do with that is turn down the productivity turn down the obedience and simply sit and sway and float down the, the river of ease. Is that what God has given us such great and enormous blessings in our generation to do? Or are we, in doing this, we're like the person who takes the great talent that God has given, 
The, the things that just divide our chore time at, at, at home into a fraction of what it used to cost and take in the old world, where you're hand washing everything, hand washing clothes, hand pumping water, walking down for drinking water, uh, 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 plowing your own field for food, kneading bread every time you want a sandwich. Uh, our time for chores and just the basic necessities to stay alive, our generation has that in a fraction. We have microwaves. You don't even have to build a fire before you, you, you reheat your burger. We have KFC. We have hung, hungers right down around the corner, right? We have saved all this time. Now, well, the false idea would be, to, would be to say that that's all evil. We need to return to some kind of homesteading backwards medieval age, and then that's more righteous. Like, that's just not necessarily true. The righteous thing is to take the blessings that God has given and fail and refuse to hoard it, but to use it. Use these gifts, use these time-saving tools so that at the end of the world, when we're being judged for how fruitful we were in the life of Jesus Christ, and we're standing next to people who wrote Bible translations, spread the gospel of the, as missionaries in the world, who, who did so much while they were having to hand-cook, hand-weave, hand-make every meal and piece of clothing that they ever had to do, we're not standing there ashamed for how we hoarded up, maybe not all of our gold and precious silver, but all of our time all of our effort, how much we just binged on Netflix instead of utilizing the free time for the kingdom of Christ. What would Paul have done with an extra hour and a half that he didn't have to go and, 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 uh, and make his own meal to do? We are a generation that is enormously blessed. Do not feel bad about that. Do not throw it away, but take it and utilize it. Turn a profit on what we have been given by God. <clears throat> Money and clothes, and this is the, the, the example that he gives. Look at uh, verse 2. He says, the money and the garments, the riches and the garments, they are given, of course, for human flourishing. They are given to meet human needs. Whereas the rich are taking them and hoarding them through pointless savings, stockpiling their outfits in their closets, and which is out of order and therefore receives God's judgment. Because while they are hoarding them, there are people unclothed, freezing outside in the winter, and they need them. The, the riches and the clothes have been given to some that in God's grace, they might trickle down to others and find the people who are in need. So if we are hoarding wealth, if we are hoarding clothes, if we are hoarding resources, because we live in a world of, of finite resources, there is necessarily somebody else missing out. If we have more than we need, then God's imperative to us would be give liberally as we have received liberally. Give graciously and, generos and generously as we have ourselves received generously. If we are hoarding them, us, others are missing out on them, or at least the resources are being wasted from, from what they could be achieving. Other people's dinners, oh, the money that could go towards other people's dinners are used to line your lounge room with gold. The funding of a mission trip is sacrificed and instead the money goes into buying the next pointless upgrade on somebody's car. Yeah, there's, this, there's this tale that uh, I remember one of the preachers going through uh, this had in his commentaries and he tells the story of, of a man in the old days who, who had such a, an enormous wealth that he had all of his family treasures and jewels and riches buried in his backyard under an enormous stone. And there was, a, there was a need that arose in the city and they were, they were putting out uh, 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 calls for the raising of funds so that the poor and the sick could be helped and this huge call went out and he did nothing and he did not help. But without him, they were able to solve it anyway. There was another very generous donor and he was very glad to hear it. He went on living his life. 
Years went by, and eventually, somebody who was gardening in his yard shoveled and moved that rock, dug up what was there, and found nothing but old cans, dirty metal, trash in that hole. And they asked the owner, what was this here for? And he was livid. He was sick because all of his riches had been stolen. And he got down to the story. He got down to the bottom of it. Somebody had stolen it, sold it, and used the funds to solve the issue of the health crisis in the city of the time. (laughs) The advice he gets is the best part. He's speaking to a friend and he's raging and he's in a fit over somebody thieving from him. And his friend's advice was, well, I don't have money to recompensate this. But, but here's my advice. Why don't you live like you have lived for the last 10 years, roll the stone back on top of the hole, and pretend the riches are there? Because <laughs> you did find living as if they were there when they weren't just before. Now, of course, this is just a picture of, of how pointless it is to hoard up things that are unused. And it is also a sign of what could be done with our goods if we were willing to sacrifice them and use them. The Proverbs say, that those who lend to the poor are lending to God. There is much good that can be done with our resources if we would be bold enough and righteous enough to actually use them. Riches are given for use, not for wasting away in a closet. And therefore, they will be judged. As people are, in in James's day, as people are suffering around them, they are doing nothing but hoarding up wealth. And therefore, on the last day, when they are judged, I love this imagery that James uses. He says, the corruption of your riches, which which rusted, which rotted, which were moth-eaten, will be transferred over to your flesh for eternity. As everything you stored up rotted, so that rotting will be a judgment against you. The, rot, the rust will stand up and say to God, they hoarded, they did not spend. They received, they did not give. They did not invest, but they buried their treasure. And they themselves will be eaten in the hellfire by the very, the, the very corruption that their riches saw. So this is the first sin that we need to take guard against. The sin of hoarding, the sin of thinking we are immortal, just a little bit safer because we have a, a bedrock of riches sitting under our garden stone. Oh, verse four, verse 4 then continues, and this is the sin of theft and fraud and murder. Behold, he says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. I, I love that he's per- personifying all of these things. He personified the, the wasting, the, the dying of the riches. He says, we'll, 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 we'll judge the person. And here he's saying that that the wages that went unpaid to their employees are crying out to God. It says they are crying out against you, continues in verse 4. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury. Actually, that's going to be the next point. But he will say down at the end of verse 5, you have murdered, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That's That's going to be relevant. What James is here, uh, here decrying is the reality in the fact, this, this is what we need to take a warning against, is that greed will always lead to theft. You can only live so long with a, with a stingy heart, with a greedy heart that loves to hoard. There's only so long, and it's a short amount of time, it is only so long that you are able to, to hoard goods before that starts lashing out to other people in the, in, in, by way of stinginess by way of failing to be generous, failing to pay your part, 
fuel money, paying for dinner, whatever it is. They're the easy applications. But then, of course, it's, it's not long before that turns into active and actual theft. Don't think that you can just, as, as, as James has already told us, and we keep on going back to this, in James 1, he said that sin is like a conception in the womb of your heart. If it is not immediately taken out, it grows. It is a pregnancy that is bringing forth a life of sin and death. So it's not, you cannot have a stingy heart for long before you start actively and actually frauding people, stealing from people, doing what is actively unrighteous. You cannot feed that selfish heart before it turns into those things. And in their example, the rich were withholding, they were withholding the wages of the poorer people in their, uh, in, in, in their fields. So again, this is, not, this is not Karl Marx standing up and saying, you've got riches and you're stealing from people by not just giving away free handouts on the corner street. It's not like that. It's, it's more unrighteous than that, even though that's an evil mindset. The unrighteousness is that they have agreed contracts with poor people to come into their fields and labor for them. We see this again come up in Jesus' parables that the poor people of the day would just be employed at a day-by-day basis. You would rock up to the town square. A landowner would have sent his land manager into town and said, I need five men, I need 20 men, I need 50 men to come and work the field and this is how much you'll get paid. And each one of them would say, yes, I agree to that amount, take me with you. But it was the law that they were to receive their wages in the day that they worked. We actually see this commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I'm going to go there. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 14 through 15. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter, four, uh, chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. It's the lands of uh, the, the laws that God gave to the people as they would inherit the land, coming out of really reaching out of and growing out of the command, do not steal, is this applied commandment for the nation. They were told, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners in your land within your towns. So whether he's Jew or Gentile, if he's working for you, do not withhold his labor, his wages. Verse 15, you shall give him the wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. It was the law that because these poor people would come in and, and, and they're literally working on a day-by-day basis. They didn't have a, a, a disposable income. It's not as if their, their savings are getting low and so they, they thought they may as well try and bump up the, the, the funds on the credit card so they go to work for an extra day. It is that these men go into town, get there nice and early so that they can work a full day's uh, a day and then be able to get paid, buy their groceries on the way home, go and feed their starving family in order to wake up just in time to do the whole cycle again. What, what a blessed day we live in. Thank you, God, for your blessings and the, the blessings of a, of a Christian worldview and how much it blesses humanity, right? But that was their day. This is, this is still the lived experience of billions of people in the world. But you can see how easy it is for the rich landowner to simply fail to pay, to simply refuse to pay the single slave, the, the single servant, the single land worker, the guy who's mowing the lawns and working the fields, it, it's not that hard to just refuse to pay them. They don't have an army. They cannot get lawyers. And this is why it says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 5, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. 
because the poor man had no means to be able to go to court and defend themselves. They had no way to pay for an attorney. They they did not even have the time to spend the next day going through the legal paperwork to then go and take him to court. It's still something that happens today. Righteous, uh, sorry, rich, evil, manipulative people get their money into the right people's pockets and they just, they, they abuse, they bribe, they twist the court system and, and they, and they uh, this is how a lot of small businesses fail because of large, uh, money-hungry, larger companies. They, they just keep on pushing the, the legal system further and, and pushing the, the, the cost of expenditures up so that the, the smaller person is, is run out of money and can do absolutely nothing. This is what he means. You have condemned... And because doing so leads to their starvation and death, God accounts that person as a murderer. The rich are withholding the wages of the person, and they are thereby dying, they and their families. Therefore, it is a murder from the the rich person. This tells us that the Jewish proverb, not in our scriptures, but what was very popular in James' day, is true still today, because it is backed up by this scripture. The old Jewish proverb in the Sirach said, to take away a neighbor's living is to commit murder. That should be pretty simple and ABCs. To, to take away somebody's means of buying their groceries, to take away their means of being able to survive is functionally to murder somebody. You've added an extra little step in there. You've added like a, a couple of stepping stones on the actual way that this all works out, but it is still to murder somebody. Well, welcome to, to this generation and many others where, yes, it is, it is a good and biblical thing to say in the whole spirit of calling out evil on the outside of the church. It is an evil thing to put unrighteous requirements on people such that they lose their jobs and are, and are, and are exposed to impoverishment and starvation. How many people, even in our day, like, we're, we're not, not going to starve like the poor of the old, old days would starve. St- being hungry for us is nothing like the starvation of the poor in James's day. And yet... How many of some of you right now, some of our family, some of our friends, the wider church family, and of course, hundreds and thousands across Australia and the, and, and the world have lost their money because they lost their job because a government or, or, or an employer or, or whoever it was decided to bring in a ridiculous, stupid, unethical law that stopped people from working. That's unrighteous. They will be judged for it. People who starved or committed suicide because of that stress, those deaths will be held to the account of the rich and the powerful and the unrighteous. And that is true because of what Deuteronomy 24 said and what James says. They say very much the same thing. In Deuteronomy 24 verse 15 it says, Don't withhold their wages. Don't cut off their means of survival, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. In James, he says in verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You don't have within your means, as a Christian, you are not allowed to rise up in revolt to overturn the class system. Not available to us. Unrighteous, not godly. Neither do we have the means to be able to always get back paid to us what has been defrauded, what has been thieved, what has been stolen from us or our family's inheritance for generations to come because of other people's unrighteousness. But as Christians who have been forgiven, we are able to forgive. But as Christians who know that God is just, we can cry out for justice and he is swift in his own time to deliver. Calvin says this is why he calls God here at the end of verse 4 the Lord of hosts. 
The Lord of hosts means, means the commander of the armies. Maybe your version says, Lord Sabaoth. That is a, it is a language meaning the, the Lord of the heavenly armies of angels. When you cry out, having been defrauded, when you cry out, having been thieved from, when the rich oppose and, and thieve from the, 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 the poor, God says that he is the defender. He has the armies and their cries reach his ears. Calvin said this, they provoke God against them, who is the protector and patron of the poor. And for this reason, he calls God the Lord of Sabaoth. So we need not rise up. We need to go down in prayer to God when we have been defrauded, when we have been assaulted, when, when our funds are kept from us, when our employer or contractor or foreman refuses to pay us, we go to God and we leave it in his hands, even if there are other wise steps to take. So against the, righteous, against the rich evil class, James has said all of these things, that they are, they are going to be destroyed in judgment because they are hoarding up their own wealth. Secondly, because they are thieving and defrauding the poor, a, a, a thing that God takes very personally. And thirdly, we see because they have, with the wealth that is still that is theirs, in fact, with the wealth that is other people's, but they have kept it through theft, they have lived in self-indulgent luxury. Another thing that God hates. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence. I love that he says, on the earth. James is sort of remembering that parable that Jesus told of Lazarus, who on the earth suffered and was poor at the gates of the rich man. But the rich man on the earth was in, was in abject luxury and loved his enjoyment and loved everything around him in this soft life. And yet when they are no longer on earth, one was in the flames of hell, the other in the comfort of Abraham's right side. James is saying, on earth, you're living in luxury. It will not be the same when you are no longer on earth. On earth, you have lived in self-indulgence and luxury. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And again, the condemnation comes. You condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. The righteous person doesn't resist you. There is one who resists you, the Lord of hosts. But we're looking here at this part about self-indulgence and luxury. God, God, God hates this. In fact, you, you sort of see the way that God speaks against self-indulgent self kings. When, when Jesus is on earth, he's just got no time for the royalties. He's got no time for Herod, who he calls a fox and all sorts of other creative names. He says, uh, John the Baptist also shows to us as, as this, this contrast that God puts out between godly, righteous, rough men and, and the soft, pathetic, effeminized, luxurious men. Uh, people come out and see John and they're all offended because they're sensitive. And he says, what did you expect to see? A man in malakoi clothing, which is to mean soft, effeminate clothing, nice velvet purple and, and, and a beautiful little dress that I call a robe and, and mascara and, and fingernail, like, like, like men of the ancient days, even some royalties today, they do that. They do the makeup. They were very effeminized. They were often mingling in homosexual relationships. And, and John the Baptist is just saying, what did you come out to see? One of those soft, effeminate, men that live in the towns no it's the it's the it's the royalty it's the princes that live like that it shows to us this this contrast between what godly blessings create which is 
Blessings from God bring about the flourishing of life, the safety, the protection, the clothing, the food in order to support our family, the building a righteous inheritance to pass on to our children's children, the Proverbs say, all of those things, and yet never the lining of every toilet seat with gold and the lining of every pillow with the finest of velvet so that we have this, this, heaven, this, this heaven on earth through our own possessions. To do that is to commit the sin of, of, of in self-indulgence through luxury. It shows two things. First of all, it misuses money because as we've already said, God doesn't give you money so that you can spend it on our own extreme comforts, not extreme comforts. But secondly, it displays where their heart is. Self-indulgence, the, the misuse of money like that is an x-ray straight into somebody's soul. Those people in James's day, if they were claiming to be Christians, their spending of this money in inordinate amounts on themselves was an x-ray into their soul that showed that their heart was where their treasure was, on this earth, in their comforts. This is what Jesus says. It's axiomatic. It is a truism. It is true in every time and in every generation. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what have you done with your wealth, James is asking. Has your wealth become comfort? That's where your heart is. Comfort is your God. Is your wealth poured into your own, your own expenses and your own enjoyments and experiences? That is where your God is. That is where your heart is. Have you poured all of your wealth into, into family things that terminate on you, comfort for your family, savings for your family, over and against other people? That is where your God and your heart is. Have you put all of your funds into something that builds an empire for you, builds a legacy that people will remember your name? Well, reputation is where your treasure is. Your reputation is where your heart and your God is. Or, or have you taken Jesus' words seriously and utilized your wealth and poured it into the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Encapsulated in that is the provision for your family, is the meeting of your own needs so you're not reliant on other people. But along with that, in his kingdom and his righteousness is generosity, is giving to those in need, is building wealth so that it can be a conduit to bless other people, and is sinking money into the church's mission to save souls so that missionaries are sent, missionary training schools can be funded, poor people can be fed where they are as starving as people were in James's day, if that is what you do, if you put your money into the kingdom and his righteousness, then your heart is in the kingdom of Jesus and his righteousness. That is the call of James today. That is the call of what James was telling them. And I love this imagery that he uses. It's pointed out by everybody that you read on this. And I love the picture he says in verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Not the day of hibernation when it's very smart to fatten up your heart. Fatten up your insides because you're about to hibernate. Not the day of fasting, when it's very smart to fatten up your heart because you're about to fast, but you fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. That is that the farm is coming and the family's hungry. The prodigal son has returned. Let's go kill the fattest calf. And on their march towards the, towards the, the sheepfold, the fattest sheep that has been pushing away all of the other sheep so that it can eat all of the food and is fattest is priding itself on being the fattest. And here comes the farmer propping himself up, goes the sheep and saying, well, I'm the fattest, choose me. And he is. 
He's picked up. The farmer's back hurts because he's such a fat calf. And he's proud of himself. Look at me. I'm, I'm picked. I'm the first. It's the day of slaughter. Whatever that means. I don't know the original Greek. But, but here we go. We're so excited and carried into the house. He's on a table. And look, I'm being given a sword in my honor. And off goes the head. That's the picture. You're fattening yourself on this earth in self-indulgent luxury. When God's wrath comes, it will be hottest against those who receive the most blessings. It will be hottest against those who hoarded the most. The fattest person in this unrighteous sense will be the first to be slaughtered. Don't let that be us. James said this to the evil unrighteous, and yet every, every line of sin that he has just denounced finds its root in all of our hearts. And so it is, it is fitting to then take the, the, the warning of, of the next section, which will be chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7 through 12, which we will look at next week. James is quick to point them to the coming of the Lord in judgment. And for that reason, I think we'll, we're just going to close here with six things that remembering the fact that the Lord is going to return soon, we don't know when, could be tomorrow, could be 10,000 years, but he's coming back at a time we don't expect and it will catch many people off guard. It pays to remember that. So we're going to go six things that the return of the Lord does to us regarding our wealth. First of all, it gives us a, a threat of urgency in obedience. It puts through everything that you do the reminder that I might be caught in the middle of this next action. Am I fraudulating the, the, the employee's money? Am I faking it on my taxes? And could Jesus literally, literally return and find me in the middle of this fraudulating, selfish, self-indulgent sin? Could Jesus come back where I'm on my third beautiful three-month cruise for the year because I'm retired? And that's a, a thing that we've created in the last few generations, which is literally just to fatten our hearts in the day of slaughter. Last years of your life, get as fat and as self-indulgent as possible. Is Jesus going to return while you're in sin? Remembering that he is coming back gives a threat of urgency and pushes us towards obedience. Secondly, the fact that Jesus is coming back, that the Lord will return, gives to us a realization of the preciousness of time, which means that we don't throw it away by binging six, uh, six seasons in one week, which means that we don't waste the blessings that we've received as a generation. We don't indulge our time for ourselves, but we're using our time for the Lord because he can be back at any moment, and time is precious. Thirdly, Remembering that the Lord may return at any moment stops you from envying the wicked because their judgment is sure. This is what Calvin said. When you remember that the unrighteous rich are going to be judged, the fact that Jesus is coming back and will judge the living and the dead reminds us not to envy those who though in this world flourish, for they will be judged when they are no longer in earth's luxuries. Fourthly, it causes us to see ourselves as stewards, not owners. If Jesus is coming back, and he is the creator of the world, he is the savior of our souls, and he is coming back as the judge and going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you for this short time of your life, which is a mist, and then it is gone on earth, then we remember that this money that I have is not ultimately mine. I came from dust. Everything I own will one day be dust. I'm going back to dust, but I've been given this gold-shaped dust or this house-shaped dust or these, this time, uh, this time uh, resource in order to be a steward, 
which means that when he comes back, he will check my accounts. Every expenditure, every receipt will be run through the judgment of God and all self-indulgences will be thrown to the fire and all those which were godly expenses for the good of the kingdom and his righteousness will be blessed with reward. Fifthly, remembering that Jesus is coming back causes you to work and use your wealth Work and use your wealth as tools to build God's kingdom rather than riches to improve your own kingdom. In other words, it's reminding us, if Jesus is coming back, this is reminding me that the ultimate thing is the kingdom, the less ultimate thing is my money. My money is a means to an end of building God's kingdom, not that my money is a means to its own end. Riches are useless if they're not utilized for Jesus' kingdom. And sixthly, it reminds you how useless a savior riches are. Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 19. Remembering that Jesus is coming back will remind you constantly how useless money is to save your soul. Ezekiel 7:19. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. In other words, they're just throwing it away as if to, to get a spider off their hand. They're throwing their silver and gold away. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. The stumbling block of their iniquity. The thing that caused so much sin was their riches. But, but that, that, that line that he just said there, their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. For us today who have probably comparative comfort and riches compared to much of the world, and of course all those who have in their hearts the beginning sins that God hates, which will one day lead you to fraudulent, murderous, thieving, self-indulgent behavior if you get your hands on money, God wants you to hear this. Your silver, your gold, other people's riches that you want to keep for yourself will not save you in the day of the wrath of the Lord. I shared this story on Wednesday at our prayer meeting. I'll share it again, and those who were there on Wednesday will have to hear it twice. There was a man, John Livingston, who was preaching in 1630s, and as he was preaching this gospel sermon, the rain started to fall, and the wealthy people that he was preaching to held up their coats, held up their umbrellas over the top of them. He told them, today you have a covering from the rain that falls from heaven, but what will you do on the day that the rain of fire comes down in judgment in the wrath of God? And in that moment, 500 people were converted, fell to their knees, and later were discipled into righteousness. And that's the question that, that, that Jesus preached on, that James is asking, that Ezekiel was speaking to, that I'm now addressing to your hearts. Riches will be no covering for you. You cannot purchase mercy from God with gold and silver and precious stones. The only covering for us in the day of the wrath of God when his justice is poured out onto every sin that was against him, the only covering will be the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that is the question. Not how much money do you have now, not how much riches do you want to have on the day that you die to go and meet God, but are you covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and are you washed clean by his blood? That is the question that God puts to every single one of us. And if we die and we face God without that as a covering, we will be condemned. For every single one of us has sinned against God. But if on that day you live your whole life in abject poverty and struggling and affliction and you see God and he judges you that day, but you're covered with the righteousness of Jesus, you will go into a world and an eternal life of intense, infinite joy and blessing. That is the gospel hope.
So let's pray and we'll finish this word of God. Father, we are so thankful. As we just, we just are on the topic of money and riches, we are so thankful because everybody who finds themselves even able to listen to this online or get here physically, just be able, being able to do that proves that we are richer than much of the world. Lord God, we have received so many blessings in our time and in our country, and we thank you for them. We don't want to feel bad for them. We don't want to be regretful for receiving them. But God, would you make us faithful stewards that can leverage them for your glory, leverage them especially for the needs of other people and the needs of the mission. Father God, we each one of us have, have the tendency towards self-indulgence and luxury spending more on ourselves so easily, whereas being so difficult to give money to other people or to meet needs or to give the offering. Father God, I pray that, that you would give to us hearts of thankfulness so that we can be generous. That you give us hearts that are, are, are filled with gratitude so that we can have hearts that are filled with generosity towards others. For freely we've received and freely we should give. Father God, I just pray that you would uh, break mindsets in people's hearts that are, that are in love with or, or, or burying their heart in the treasure of riches who are, who are, uh, are held down and maybe even, maybe even abused by their own mindsets because they, they've lost out of a lot of money. Maybe they've been defrauded. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they've had to chew into their savings and, and lost all of their income because of recent events in our world or, or maybe they were cheated out by somebody in a business deal. Lord, would you give to them the peace that surpasses all understanding and being able to rest on you who are the defender of these things, to be able to rely on you who is the provider of all good things and would remove from them bitterness and that crippling effect that bitterness brings in our life. Father God, I pray that we would, if there are any right now who are in need, that they would be able to reach out to Christians around them for those needs. But God, we rest ultimately on you. For our, for our goods, for our riches, for our future income, for the safety of our great-great-grandchildren, all of these things are in your hand. But God, I pray that ultimately you would give to people the gift of faith, that greatest blessing in the world, because it connects us to Jesus and receives from him imputed righteousness, receives from him adoption into your family, and receives from him forgiveness of every single one of our sins. Would you, would you remind each one of us that that, if we have that and nothing else, we are still the richest people in the world. And Lord, if anybody does not have that this evening, would you give to them faith? Would you press on their hearts the need to repent and rely on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Because we want to live and be a church that serves for the glory of our King Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, amen. <laughs>